Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Greg Brooks. Greg, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, what's up, Alex? Hey, everybody. My name is Greg Brooks. I am a partner and CMO at Search Tides. We're an information hub. And so what our job is to do, though, is to fully understand what the landscape of everything with basically what we're calling the current and next era of search. And that's every way that people look for information online today and how that will evolve over time tomorrow. This makes me feel very vindicated because I had an idea several years ago. This was at least four years ago. And we have this website, it had thousands of pages because it's been accumulating for decades. And I said, one day there will just be one page and you'll interact with it like you do with Siri or something. And it will just bring to you the information you need. You'll tell it what you need, it'll just give it to you. It'll reformat it, reconstruct it. You won't have to navigate your way through everything the way we do now. This is before LLMs. This is just understanding that what we have all this knowledge in this website, it's fragmented across a billion things. We need to find a way to streamline that search experience. And now we're, we find ourselves here. So I want my first question for you is how accurate is that? How do you see, how does your company see the future of people interacting with information playing out? How does that next generation of websites look like? Absolutely. So you want me to answer how right you are? <laughs> yes, please. please. And be as critical as possible. You're, you're... I think that we basically, so there's two really like cycles of technology that are important for us to provide some context with. And the first one is basically the adoption curve. And what that looks like, you are driving a car up a mountain and the very beginning of it, it's you're at the base of Mount Everest. And you're like, hey, I'm going to climb Mount Everest, but you're at the base of Mount Everest and the entire journey is left ahead of you. In our world, in the marketing world, in a data driven world, we are part of this group of people who are our job is to see as far out into that mountain as possible. So we're like, hey, this direction that we think things are going in. The adoption curve is basically that mountain and then the other side of it, then the technology gets outdated, gets less adopted. The second curve, which is really important, is called a hype cycle curve. And what that works is you basically have this thing called an innovation trigger at the beginning of technology becoming aware to a level of the population. And in this particular instance, the innovation trigger was ChatGPT. That became real for everybody. Behind the scenes, it was DaVinci 3.0 before. Even at search sites, we were using models internally for months and months before that became so the, the technology was already there, was already being used, but the quote unquote innovation trigger was that ability to use ChatGPT. And now what you have is basically the up curve of a hype cycle where everyone's imagination is dictating what is possible. Expectations become, we can do anything, anytime, anywhere, always. And then what happens is you basically get to the building phase. And the building phase is, oh, this is not possible because of this. This is going to take years and years because of this. This thing is going to, a good example is like with electric vehicles, where it's like, we actually can't all adopt electric vehicles today because of the like resources that are necessary, the materials that are necessary to extract from the earth. Oopsies, we didn't realize that. So all of a sudden, the feasibility of these things go far out into the future. Another great example 
is 3D printing. I don't know, Alex, if you remember, but there was a time a number of years ago where it's like, if you don't have a 3D printer in your house, who knows what bad things will happen to you? And it was <laughs> everywhere, every article. And now when's the last time you've heard about a 3D printer? Never. But what are we doing? Yep. We're literally 3D printing items on the International Space Station. So we found the other side of the hype adoption curve there, which is like everyone and their mother needs a 3D printer. Then you never hear about 3D printers anymore. Why? Because we've identified all of the issues and flaws and obstacles. And now we basically are at what's called the, it's called the, I forget the exact name of it, but it's something of productivity where it's like the homeostasis. We can actually use it for this. We're using it for this. We can't actually use it for that. We're not using it for that. We're also going to get there with AI, with LLMs, whatever it is. Right now, we are basically in the middle of this hype cycle when in the reality, like the overwhelming majority of the population, and I am talking about like 90% plus, are going to search for information the exact same way that they do today for the next, like for an amount of years that will seem incomprehensible to others. The same way that it seems incomprehensible to me that my mom still uses MapQuest when plotting out where to go. But that's the reality of the situation. So I think you're right in a sense where it's if we go out even further into the future, I should just have to think what I want or just voice activate what I want and I should get a response to it. And ideally there shouldn't be a computer chip implanted in my brain. Where are we today? We're at the bottom of Everest looking up at the mountain and we're imagining what it's like to be at the top of the mountain, which all the people who died on the way up will tell you eh, there's a difference between reality and theoretical. Yeah. They'll have these maybe at county fairs or whatever. You put the ball at the top and then there's all these spokes and then the balls go down the thing and they land somewhere. It's like a, almost like how roulette works. I think that's the phase we're in. It, there's like 100 slots where it could end up. AI is going to land in a few different consumer areas or a few different business areas where it, like with 3D printing on the space station, that was just one little bucket it could have ended up in. It could have ended up in anything, not literally anything. I think that's where business judgment comes in. Does it make sense that it would end up here or there? Does it make sense that everybody needs one? We probably could have reasoned from the beginning that, that not everybody will need one. <laughs> but the people selling the 3d printers you can't listen to those people they're gonna tell you of course everybody needs one <laughs> maybe even two yeah i actually i got one i got the ender 3 pro pretty good <laughs> what's the thing that you've printed on it where you've been like oh wow that was actually really impressive i had a 3d model of myself made that i 3d printed <laughs> and that worked i wasn't able That's to print solid. the full thing only the bust like the bus was okay. fine, but once it got to like the arms and the legs, it would always mess up. Yeah, that, I feel like that's asking for a lot. <laughs> Having no idea what the current level of technology looks like in 3D printing, I feel like that's asking for a lot. It's fun. It's yeah, it's definitely like a hobby, a, a fun, fun tool for engineering minded people, I think, who just yeah. enjoy that stuff. And maybe and that's another one of the slots that it fell into is like the mm. hobbyist slot. And I understand this is a marketing conversation, but I can't resist. Once it goes down all the spokes, like wh where are the areas AI is going to probably land in your opinion in most usefulness? Okay. I can give us a two for one. I can answer that question and do it through the context of marketing and do it through a bigger picture of how we see things working at, um, at search sides. So essentially like 
we believe that the cost of creating good content is going to go to zero. And that doesn't mean that 100% of content is going to cost zero dollars. And it doesn't mean that all good content is going to be AI generated. It just means what does content creation look like for ChatGPT 10.0? So the answer is it's really good at a lot of stuff and it's gonna to continue to get better at those things. What does the flip side look like when you have an internet and media, even with Sora, now we're talking, we're not just talking about written media, we're talking about media, period, that has so much generated via AI. What is the natural reaction for human beings? I think there's two distinct, there's two distinct uh, pathways that we will both take. We'll take both of them. Pathway number one is ease of access of information. It's everything that you've just described. It's basically like, how do I make a more efficient version of whatever this internet is currently? And then the second pathway is what we're calling a return to humanity. There's so much I content, and again, with a capital C, lots of different media forms that will exist on the internet. What about the human component? And so even today, we can quantitatively say, this is what the human component looks like. And I'll give you an example of how this would be used in content creation we are basically thinking about things in terms of expertise and experience. What's a bad idea if you're creating a piece of content today? To, re to try to be a better version of what ChatGPT is or another LLM or basically like a search engine. That's not going, because why? Because you're competing against something that is a better aggregator of information by definition than you will ever be. So what do you do? You write from your heart, you write from your experience, you write from your expertise. What's an example that I love talking about? If I go into uh, a pharmacy, I get a prescription, I go to the pharmacist and I say, hey, I have this prescription for this thing, can you fill it? And the pharmacist says, yeah, I could totally fill it. By the way, there's a generic version available. It's 10% of the cost, you should just go with that. That's the pharmacist using their expertise to know that exists and to deviate from the recommendation. The flip side, I go back to the pharmacist, I say, hey, I have this prescription for this thing, can you fill it? The pharmacist says, yeah, I can fill it. By the way, every time I fill this, everybody comes back because it doesn't work and then i give them this other thing and it works so you should just take this other thing now that's the pharmacist using their experience to dictate what should happen both of those are inherently human because they have nothing to do with the aggregation of information they all have to do with being a human being and writing from personal experience and that person's level of expertise content creation on the internet whether it's written content, whether it's something coming from a search engine, whether it's something coming from an LLM or what. I think what we're going to start seeing in the future is we're going to start seeing this thing. SEO, we're all familiar with. There's going to be GEO, generative engine optimizations, which is the same sort of thing is going to roll over. How do we optimize for that environment? And the answer is what we're deeming at Search Tides, the human era of the internet, the human era of SEO, the human era of GEO. Ironically, it exists because there's such a heavy concentration in the AI era, which is occurring simultaneously. But yeah, I see it playing out that way. I see people ease of access on one hand, and then on the other hand, yearning for human connection. It's moving people's up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, except it's not about survival. It's, hey, now that I can get answers to my questions infinitely more easily, and I can learn about things infinitely more easily, now what? And the answer is we go to the other side. Now I would care about human connection. Now I care about the human component more. Now I, and I think we'll see a swing back to community as well.
because the AI can't satisfy it. As the AI satisfies the more academic needs that we have, we start to think about the other needs. Yeah, exactly. So that's super well said. I think the word academic is a fantastic word to use there. I think that summarizes it perfectly. And it's the metaphor of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Once I get my foundation of information, AKA food, now what do I care about? Now I care about something higher level. Now I care about connection. Is there a limit? Because now people are talking about the humanoid robots. They're talking about having AI companions. Is there a limit? Could you extend that argument out and just say AI will then conquer that need and then conquer this need, like the, each need after one another? Ultimately, like there is something, and, and we're going super philosophical here. So if the non-philosophical answer is potentially... But from my perspective, and I'm just speaking from my own perspective here and my views, my answer is something without the human essence cannot replace the inherent feeling of connection that exists from one human to another. And for sure, many of us have had many different experiences, thoughts, how we were parented, layered on top of who we are at our core, and but who we are at our core does not change. We just have these things on top of it also. And I think when you strip away all those other things, who we are at our core is the definition of human and therefore it is also the definition of what AI is not. And you can get to, you could look at it logarithmically and you could say AI is gonna keep doing more percentages and more percentages and more percentages and I fully agree with you there, but it's not, it's, we still know, we have a knowing on a deeper level and all of those things can still be fulfilled exactly the way that you just said them. And this is still the case. Yeah. Yeah. It's up to us to responsibly use it and be loyal to our humanity. I think that's a big part of it, too, is resisting the ease that may come with just human relationships are hard. They're, they're, like, yes, we have we yearn for them, but they are hard. And AI relationships are not hard. They, the AI serves you without any disagreement, unless you, of course, ask something that's banned or <laughs> taboo, then it doesn't like to answer. But there's no arguments per se. I think it is up to us to resist the shortcut that AI may seem to present because it's not really going to be a shortcut. We still need that human connection at the end of the day. Yeah, it's a great way of putting it. And there's this, I was at conference, I don't know, this must be like six or seven years ago. Well, there were some psychologists talking about a study that they did that basically they were like, we're trying to understand human emotion and we're trying to understand what creates motivation. They're like, all right, so we were measuring a group of people for motivation via pain aversion and then also like motivation via basically pleasure seeking. I'm avoiding pain. I'm seeking pleasure. And they basically like, and we were going to be curious. We're curious which one actually had more of an impact, whatever it is. They stopped the study about a quarter of the way through because they found out that there is no such thing as motivation via seeking pleasure. <laughs> that is like the short term existence. The only thing that actually creates learning and long term change in behavior is experiencing something and then saying, "Ooh, I don't ever want to do that again. Nope. No, thanks. Never again. And then immediately we change. And so mm -hmm. everything that you just said, I agree with completely. And I would also add on to it and add a twist on top of it, which is just, we actually can 
also potentially just, yeah, just go too far to this one side and then be like, you know what? There's a void here that I don't like collectively. I think we're seeing that with social media. I think with social media, it was like, hey, this is super exciting. And now we've like over adjusted to another side and we're like, hey, there's a lot of potential negative consequences here. Let's create boundaries knowing what we know now. And if you were to ask me, was any of that avoidable? I'd basically be like, I don't know. Humans are pretty YOLO-y. We're just like, so there's not studies that say <laughs> taking Adderall for 30 years is bad. Seems like it's fine to me. And you're like, this thing has been around for 10 years. That's why there's no 30 year readers. There's not lots of information that <laughs> cigarettes cause cancer. Doctors should recommend them. We should put Coke in Coca-Cola. Like as a species, yeah. we've always been like, yeah, new thing. Let's do it. Cell phones right <laughs> next to our groins. Yeah, let's do it. That won't end poorly at all. And it's just like, that's just who we are as a species. And we've been really like malleable and adaptable as a species. And that I think is, I think that there's a lot of concern right now. And I think it's, I think it's valid concern. And I think that if you look back at our history, we have a pretty good track record. We're just by nature, we're explorers, we're creators, we're adventurers. We want to, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? Because we're just trying to experience whatever this, whatever the heck this thing is called that we're on with earth, we're just trying to experience it. Okay, cool. There's a new experience that we can have. There's a new experience that we can have. And so I just think that stuff is going to play out the way that it always plays out. And it's going to wind up with something that uh, I think AI will be really interesting because this should probably be the first time that we can replace a lot of things that have been basically labor capital. So people doing things where I think we'll actually replace that and that won't come back and that won't create new industries the same way that it previously did. When the railroads came in, everybody was like, it's all over. That's the end of the world. And then we had the, and then computers came in and, and everybody started going out of jobs. And now what's the largest industry in the world? IT. So, which didn't exist before computers. So it's really easy to see where we lose from. It's very difficult to see what will be added to. But with AI, I do actually think it crosses this threshold where there's just so much stuff. There's basically two or three economic layers of the global economy that is human labor based, which AI will be able to replace in a variety of ways. Then what? I think that's the big question that we need to be thinking about. I agree. And I've never thought about it from that perspective that we as a human race operate in a similar fashion to how we individually operate. And that makes perfect sense. Of course, we have a human personality, like a populist personality that will adopt certain things and reject certain things very similarly to how we do in our own lives. I want to bring the conversation a little bit more into the marketing realm, which I think it does still connect. Because I think one application of AI that's coming is in advertising and in marketing. And I think that it has the potential to be good. I think it has the potential to be intrusive. But how do you imagine that AI will influence or impact the marketing world? Just generally, I, I, one thing that comes to mind is 
one-to-one messaging, like su- hyper-personalized, like, Greg, y- you, I know that you haven't tried any of this type of product before, but we really think it'll be good for you. Just try one of these products. And it has right. affiliate links to all of them. So it's, it, it, it would operate a little bit differently as if it were a person. Uh, how do you right. think it, it'll impact marketing? And I'm just like, fine, I know I'm supposed to moisturize my face before, but I'll do it. <laughs> I'm at the, it's just, you're at this age. I think that'll be multi-phased. I think the first phase is the rejection of hyper-personalization by consumers, because you basically have a group of people who will look at something and say, I know exactly what this is. And it's the same group of people who go on to their, who say something in a conversation in a room and then they go onto their phones and they have a relevant Instagram ad for it. And they're like, all right, I don't like that. So what does that look like with AI? And you're aware of the level of precision of what's being offered to you. Do you reject that due to its level of perfection? It's like the equivalent of you might've gotten advice from somebody. Hey, if you're writing a cold email to someone, literally make a spelling error somewhere, miss, make a different punctuation thing somewhere because that imperfection is human. So I think we're going to, this optimization path is going to take us so far in one direction that we're going to see an initial rejection of it. And then I think it's just going to be, I think the obvious call out to what's going to happen is you're just going to get more programmatic precision. So imagine cookies, but the next version of cookies, like cookies led to programmatic And that led to ad exchanges where you're basically dynamically rendering and generating advertisements. So the next version of that is basically a more intelligent way to decide what needs to be said. And then to your point, intra advertising cookies, if you want to call them or language or communication, whatever it is, in terms of what we're seeing for search, I think it's important to call out. We just talked about all those topics. I am telling you, Alex, the overwhelming majority of people are going to keep their exact same behaviors for an amount of time that is incomprehensible to others. <laughs> that, that's just the reality of the situation. Yeah. The same way that to someone, something looks inevitable, what I just said is literally the same level of inevitability. That's just the way that the math and distribution works. So I think the whole speaking, writing from what you know, from a place of experience and expertise in terms of tactics, those are things that we recommend and we talk about a lot more precision than I think is going to make sense to go into on this call. But I, I think the most beneficial things about AI is going to be around the reduction of wasted effort. And that is going to come first on the advertising side for the advertisers. So basically, the way that technology gets adopted is it's whoever spending the money generates the benefit first. And so on the advertising side, you're going to see all of these improvements, which will be advertiser focused, which I think is going to create that like initial dirtiness. That's not like this, this is too precise. This is too exact. And then I think it, there's going to be a rejection of it. And then I think there's going to be this homeostasis where advertising is going to be used to provide better potential opportunities to someone who's being advertised to, but I actually don't think it's going to go to the level of customization that a lot of people think, because that's basically a fundamental change and how we've been perceiving information in the entire modern era. 
of the internet, of television, of radio. And I think you will see the same way that like humans are predictable. I think you will see a large rejection to, to just like instant change, basically. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And it seems like a lot of technologies have a sort of like a flash value, like a very quick value that works very briefly. And then it fizzles out, like the excitement fizzles out. And then eventually enough time passes and it comes back. But it works because they weren't doing it for a long time. It's like the same way fashion trends come in and out. And perhaps marketing and advertising trends could be similar, similarly cyclical, where hyper-personalized ads work for the first year or the first six months for a smaller group, not the majority. And then the, that group tires of it and they're like, I don't like this. I don't being hyper-targeted. And then it goes away. And then we have a, re, a resurgence of more traditional advertising. And yeah, then eventually it'll come back. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I, think that's a, I think that's a super valid way to look at it. And it's, it speaks to the cyclical nature that we've been talking about a lot of different things. I just think that if people are not really zoomed out and thinking about the largest perspective possible, it's really challenging to have a full understanding of how fragile a system is. And so I'll give one example, we'll say on the AI theme. OpenAI wants to raise money at, what was it, like a $7 trillion valuation or $8 trillion? It doesn't matter what wow. the actual valuation of it was. It was just like some astronomically laughably high number, <laughs> at least was reported by some. It's just something where it's just like, this definitively is the most valuable technology in the world, period, end of story. And then on the flip side, so we look at that and we go, that's it, that's the new standard. And then we forget about some stuff like, I think Sora was trained on something like, or not Sora, ChatGPT. There's this, there's a, there's content commons on the internet, which are basically just now being used as data sets. They're open access and you can train your AIs on them. And ChatGPT was trained on these, on these common, like commercially available data sets. And I don't know the exact number, so I'm going, to use a, I'm going to use a conservative number. That's probably about like 10 pentabytes of data. I think the actual number was something like five to six pentabytes, but let's just call it 10 pentabytes. Google has YouTube in terms of video format. Right now, that's 300 pentabytes of data. That's literally 30 times more data than the most valuable thing on the market. And Google, sure, Gemini just came out and it's, it's definitely in the conversation piece right now, but there's a moment in time where that can just absolutely flip and somebody with a proprietary data set that is 30 to 40 times larger than what anybody else can do, which by the way, only gets more competitively advantaged as every single day goes on and more and more data gets uploaded. So the game could just change so quickly. And that's why we see these innovations. And that's also why we see, like what you said, it, you were talking about like the roulette wheel. I look at it from a Plinko board because price is right. You drop the thing in and you see where it falls at the bottom. It's because there's such iterations and there's such fragility to the system. And that's also why with advertising, things are so cyclical. One day, they just stop working. What actually happened, you hit a saturation point. There were X amount of people or X percentage of people that had Y percentage exposure over Z frequency, and that's it. 
and now it doesn't work the same way for the cost structure that you're looking for anymore. And then what happens? That is the exact same thing that happens when an industry goes from unsaturated to saturated. The definition of an unsaturated industry is one of excess profits. There's more money being made than there quote unquote should be during the long term. So what happens? Then competition comes in because they're like, hey, there's extra money here. Then the threshold to do well rises. The money to be made decreases on average. And in the capitalistic structure that we have, winners become more top heavy. So you have fewer winners who win more and you have more non-winners who have less to share, basically. So the same happens. All of this stuff is all the same thing always. We just put different labels on it and call it different things. We can call it human psychology. We can call it consumer behavior. We can call it economic models, but it will also govern the same principles of AI. This is just the next thing that is on the list of a very long list of things. Yeah. Yeah. It's thinking about economic power of AI models. It's in a sense, like if you had a monopoly, that's how it feels to look at something like a chat GPT because, and even across multiple industries, because there's a potential for that technology to replace a large segment of our economy. We're not quite there yet, but we're moving closer and closer every day. It feels almost like anti-competitive to have this, they have a moat. The moat is the development cost and the equipment cost and the expertise to build these models. They have a moat on the inside of their castle. They have the ability to replicate a lot of businesses. And is that good? Is taking away that competition good? I think absolutely not. Because we have really great creative agencies and they cost a lot of money to run because we have to pay people to think of a hundred ideas for every single thing that happens. And right. it's a very expensive. So it costs a hundred units to do one creative piece or something. And then on the inside of this moat that nobody else can get into, they can create the same output or similar. Maybe it's not the same output, but it's only one unit of effort. So in, it's right. like a hundred times easier. Maybe it's half the cost. Maybe it's half, maybe it's 80% of the quality everybody's just going to switch to that probably, except for a small fraction who want to pay for the extra 20% because it's probably significantly cheaper. That's Isn't that kind of moving us backwards a little bit? We're almost like, it's like fast fashion where, where the clothing is less quality or, or technology that is manufactured obsolescence, like cars don't last as long, washing machines don't last, nothing lasts as long as it used to because then you can make more money over the right. long term for the customer. So are we moving towards that where we have a lowering in the quality of the product because people are no longer attending to every detail and a cheapening of the offering as well, uh, but in general, just a lowering of quality of services. Is, do you think that's possible? It's a great question. I think that there's a really valid argument that could be made. That has been the case the moment since we started basically free trade globally, where it's like now we had the human version of that. And we've had that since, what, 80s, 70s and like that. But what you're keying into is the pace that like we're, it's everything is always an exponential curve. It just doesn't appear to be the case until it hits the exponential part of it. 
And what we're doing is we're hitting the exponential part of it. And we're looking back and we're saying, holy crap, this is nuts. We've literally been setting this up since we started to do global trade. The minute you could outsource something to a different country to get cheaper production with different labor laws, like that set up this. I would, I'm going to make the, my own opinions, which are not endorsed by anyone other than myself, like historically, capitalism has been the best economic structure we've ever figured out as a society. Every single other structure has failed. Literally, you can point to every single structure and it's failed. Simultaneously, what we have right now is not sustainable for the future. If you want to call it capitalism, post-capitalism, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't matter. We need the next version and it needs to be more accommodating than what it is currently, despite the fact that the current version is doing a great job basically increasing standard of living globally. So that's like the best argument for it. The worst argument is like, does everyone not see that we're running off of a cliff right now and we're headed right towards all of these problems? A great one specifically is like, we're about to replace X percentage of all human labor in the world with robots. So I think we need a new structure. And I think the new structure, I couldn't tell you what that needs to look like, but ultimately, I think to your point, yes, it's a big concern. I think the trains left the station a long time ago, like literally a couple of decades ago on it. We just hit the exponential curve with AI. And, and we basically need a structure where work is not required, like where work is not required. And there needs to be a balance where if you do want to work, then you get a proportionate amount of reward that is sufficient incentive for you to do. And then you don't have to if you don't want to. And if you want to, then you do. But my big fear, which I think maybe you're keying into a little bit, is that AI will go the same way that pretty much all other technology has gone, which is just like it gets hoarded, which is what you were describing with the moat and the castle. Inside it looks like this, outside the world looks like that, that it'll get hoarded, and then it will get used against the population, essentially. So. I think what you said, you can go back to railroads when it was like, oh gosh, now we can't transport all this stuff by horseback anymore. How many people is this going to put out work? And then we had like factories. Oh, wow. Now we're like decreasing quality on average. Okay. We're oftentimes decreasing quality on average and we're really pushing out, churning out human labor. Now a lot of people are getting paid a small amount of money and now factory owners are making a bunch of money. I think those problems have existed in society for a while under our current structure. We're just hitting that. I, we've hit that threshold for sure. Whereas, hey, this is, we're running off a cliff right now. First of all, thank you. This is, and, and thank you for going out on a limb and talking about this philosophical side because it's always my favorite um, angle to take uh, in these discussions. And you must enjoy roller coasters or other thrills because I can't think of another reason <laughs> you would you'd bring it in. I'm curious, though, so when I'm thinking about replacement of people, there's two angles to it. One is the population collapse that we're facing. This is a big problem for humanity. And so there's like a declining population of humans. And so you do need robotics or AI or technology to replace 
the this the future people that don't exist in that job that's like of the utmost importance and i think it's completely separate from any discussions of ubi or not having to work again i think it's a completely separate discussion like we need to start by just making sure that we do not collapse our industries because there's not enough people in them first that to me is like an a, almost uncontestable use case for ai and robotics that is absolutely ethical to maintain the same standard of living. Then you have the second piece of the discussion, which is now that we have all this stuff that can replace jobs, why not replace a few more? And then you get to do whatever you want. And as I'm thinking about it, I think that the risk there is the loss of leverage and the the wisdom that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And what I mean by that is there's a certain amount of leverage a certain amount of fighting will that you have if you deliver value in the world, if you have a competency that is unique, that is of added value. There is a safety net in having skills that bring value to others. And if we as if we allow a big group of people that otherwise would have that safety net to give it up and have fun, those people are actually at risk of being taken advantage of because the person yeah. who owns the AI, they are working hard. They are not enjoying UBI. The person who actually runs the next ChatGPT that's replacing those jobs has power over the people that they have replaced. And I, there's yeah. not even no need to even speculate what could happen, but that's really get, getting into the communism area. I think empowering those people would protect them. Giving them skills, giving them some kind of a job would protect them. So that's, but that's, a, that's the separate part of the argument. And I think less important to discuss. It's more, more important to agree that we do need this technology to replace people to some degree, just because there's not going to be enough of them in the future to keep all of our infrastructure working. I, yeah, I think, I think those are great points. And I appreciate your ability to go across a bunch of different spectrums in terms of the population. And then at the same time, being cognizant of the power dynamics and the potential risk via disempowerment that could occur. And also, by the way, historically occurs every time we get to a new technology enabled era. We just talked about a couple different examples, everything from trains to factories to computers, whatever. I think in terms of population, those are great points. If I was basically going to true or false, yes or no, is the purpose of the human existence to work? And I had to pick one of them. I would probably pick no. That is probably not our purpose. Binarily something, yes or no, probably no. Now. I don't know how to get too much further than that, because everything that you just said is super valid and everything that you said is historically likely to continue being the case. And that reality also creates a potential negative for the future. So I've been called an endless beacon of optimism, which I very much appreciate that that's been murmured around me. But for me, I think this stuff always is going to work out because I think that humans are very adaptable to change. And I actually would point to COVID 
as a recent example of that. And this is independent of anyone's belief about anything that was related to that time period outside of the fact that as a society, we were like, hi, this is what reality looked like literally yesterday. And this is what we understand a theoretical new reality to look like today. And we were incredibly adaptive as a species. And I yeah. look at that and I say, that gives me hope that we still have that we just keep doing it because we just prove that's how we adapt to situations of massive uncertainty and without really having any past experiences to go against. Like telling somebody that a hundred years ago there was this plague that killed a bunch of people. That's cool. We don't live that life anymore. So that's not exactly a playbook for how this exists for me today. Mm -hmm. I believe that what we are seeing right now in politics, we're seeing it with the current class of celebrities. We're seeing it with the current class of like the first class of influencers. We are basically seeing people being looked up to who we're also seeing through that veil. Maybe they actually shouldn't be deified. Maybe they shouldn't actually be looked up to. Maybe they don't have the greater goods interest in mind. And we're becoming aware of that. I genuinely believe the next era for society is replacing those prototypes of people with groups of people who actually do have the genuine best interests for humanity. And they do have this understanding that like, we are all ultimately connected beings. And how do we create policy or a world or rules and regulations in the spirit that embodies that? I genuinely feel that is the next era for us. I think that it's like this perfect intersection of technology enablement through reach and social media. You and I can have one podcast conversation and it can reach theoretically the entire world. Maybe even the entire world listens to it 50 times. It's impossible to know, but like on one hand, and then on the other hand, we also have this general discontent with this group of people that like we previously saw as having our backs. I think our parents would probably be able to name a lot of celebrities. I think we as younger people, maybe it's maybe only people in the United States being a little bit more naive about government and like taking care of people. So I just see all this stuff intersecting and I'm like, cool, I see where the future is and it's getting the people who do act from a place of the greater good, being able to do so and enact change in a meaningful way. And I don't, I couldn't tell you how all of that stuff intersects but I just know that this is what's coming. And that's why I move into tomorrow. Very uncertain about how it's gonna go down. I can't tell you who, what, where, when, how, why, but I can say if I was gonna put a bet on it, this is exactly how it would, this is how it's gonna play out. And by the way, it typically doesn't mean today is at X and then it goes in a straight arrow up to better tomorrow. But, but I think we get to that place that we're hoping that we get to. I love your optimism. And I have to say that you're definitely making me feel more optimistic about AI. And I do want to work from that vision because otherwise we have to be careful what we manifest. And yeah. I spend a lot of time thinking about the dangers of AI 
but I think it's more useful to think about how it can benefit and how the world can adapt positively to it. And a lot of it is a change in what we, who we choose to follow and value. Oh, that's so well said. That's so well said. Thank you. So the last question, Will, I'm just curious. So you are an optimist about AI. Do you believe in, let's say, 50 or 100 years, will AI be in existence? Oh, nice. No easy buckets over here. <laughs> There's a book. I think it's called Neuromancer. And it was made in the 80s. And it was one of the first books. There's a, it's a trilogy. They're solid. The first one, I should probably know this, the name of the author, but... This was, this was, it was made in the 80s. It talked a lot about metaverse stuff super early. It talked about VR super early. It talked about sentient AI, probably before that was ever in the, and in that book, there were basically, there was, there were basically governors the same way that you have on a car that prevents it from going over a certain miles per hour. So there were basically governors on, attached to all AI, even if they're sentient, that if they started going off the wires, they'd basically just get axed. I think that the I think that the bigger question is what do things look like once we get past AGI? Yeah. And I think Nick Bostrom, who is like a super early AI, hey guys, watch out. There's a lot of potential danger here. Used a great example, which is. Having AI that is more intelligent and more high functioning than a human brain across the board is basically we're a spider in a tree and we see that there's a there's a thing below and we are given the set of instructions. There's an apple next to us and we're given the set of instructions. Hey, prevent the thing below from getting the apple. So we spin a web because we're a spider. And then the thing below reaches around the web and grabs the apple. And that is just so incomprehensible to us and so incredibly basic to the thing below. That's probably the world that's entering in, a, in an AGI, like a post-AGI world. And I have no idea what that's going to look like. My hope is that we can, it's going to be an inflection point. The problem is inflection points typically don't have one guaranteed pathway, but it could be this unbelievably positive trajectory changing experience. And it could be an unbelievably negative trajectory changing experience. And I couldn't tell you how it's going to go. Yeah, we're hoping for the best and we're going to build for that <laughs> brighter future. I think that we're going to enter a golden age of humanity at some point in the next 30 years, where things are, where the way that we think differently about each other and about the world and life around us is going to be dramatically different than how we think about it today. And I think if we are coming from that sort of a mindset, when we're also reaching liftoff with technology, that is more likely to create an environment that leads to the positive prosperity. And so that is, I think, the bigger message to get out there. If you want to have a better future with AI, understand that like we are 
equals as a species. We need to be taking care of each other. We need to care about each other. We need to love each other. We need to see ourselves as equals. And people who are taking positions that hurt that mindset are not the people that we should be investing our time energy into, but rather we should work to usher in a new era that empowers us as a population and as a species and allows, and then let's put the technology into the hands of those folks. Absolutely. Thank you, Greg. I really appreciate it so much, this conversation, and I'd love to have a follow-up soon. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Alex. It was a blast. I, I don't get the chance to speak from this lens as much as I was able to today, and I really, really enjoyed it. So thank you for guiding us down that path. Absolutely. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you soon.